Welcome to our podcast. I am Linda Messer. My husband Ron and I invite you to join us in our weekly broadcast of A New Voice of Freedom. Welcome to Season 4 of A New Voice of Freedom, written by Ronald Keith Messer. This podcast is part of a series we call Stories of the New Testament, an appendage to a series of books written under the banner In Defense of Christianity. Podcast 148 examines Matthew chapter 18, 1-14, Part 1, That Which is Lost. The disciples, who from the beginning have been taught about the kingdom of heaven, asked Christ a very human question. At the same time came the disciples of Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Perhaps the Savior wondered if they had even listened to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is clear that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are not measured as are the greatest on earth. Kings, queens, captains of industry the rich and powerful, the talented and famous, the movers and shakers. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven are the humble, meek, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and those who endure persecution for the sake of Christ. Perhaps Christ is disappointed because he knows his time is short, and from the beginning he has been preparing his disciples to carry on the work after his death. And here, they appear to be jostling for superiority. His answer, as usual, is shockingly brilliant and turns their thoughts away from earthly standards of judgment. One can assume that the twelve apostles had been feeling pretty special, having been called and set apart by Christ himself for such a high position. The Lord reminds them that they are servants and have no greater claim to the kingdom of heaven than a small child. And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What Christ says to the twelve apostles is true for all of us. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. It is difficult to find a greater lesson in humility, but Christ then places a tremendous responsibility upon those who preach the gospel of Christ. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. The millstone you saw as you opened the podcast is from a photo I took at Cades Cove in East Tennessee in the Smoky Mountains, a small 19th century village settled by the Europeans in 1818. 
Some millstones weighed 2,000 pounds. At the time of Christ, millstones weighed over 3,000 pounds. If you can imagine it hanging around your neck and being cast into the sea, you will get some idea of the seriousness of the Savior's image. When we think of little ones, we naturally think of small children. But the context suggests Christ's definition of little ones expands from the very young to the very old. It could refer not just to children, but also to all those who are innocent. For example, to anyone who is just learning right from wrong, good from evil, truth from error. It could refer to those who have just come to Christ at whatever age and are seeking to be taught the truth of the gospel. Imagine someone who hangs on to your every word. Any servant of Christ has a tremendous responsibility to first study the scriptures and know the doctrine and furthermore to stick to the doctrine rather than teaching man's philosophy or culture or traditions or biases. It also suggests the importance of parental responsibility. Christ continues, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. A woe is a specific curse, the importance of which is emphasized by the Savior's stark image. It is a reminder that God is our Father in heaven, and He looks with love upon all of us as His children. Imagine His heartache when those of us who are entrusted with his children abuse that trust. His condemnation grows even stronger. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. To offend has many meanings. Cause to sin, cause to disobey the moral code, transgress, trespass, misbehave, commit a crime, wound, affront, injure, humiliate, betray, abuse, corrupt, mislead, hurt, insult, damage, attack, provoke, disrespect, assault, and so on. The Savior warned, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Does that not suggest that we have angels watching over us? Feeling alone, of course, does not mean choosing to be alone. However, sometimes our sorrow blinds us to the fact that we really are never alone. We do have angels attending us. A third part of heaven followed Lucifer when he was cast out of heaven. Satan's angels are real, those spirits unseen by mortal eyes, and they work tirelessly to turn us against Christ. The battle in heaven between Christ and Satan, good and evil, continues on earth. It is very logical that if we have devils hovering about trying to deceive us, that God would send his angels to give us an equal chance. The more alone we feel, the more we should seek the grace of Christ, that we feel his arms around us. Rather than ask the Lord to send his angels to protect us, 
it would be more accurate to ask the Lord to help us to perceive the angels that are already guarding us. Anytime we feel the presence of the Holy Ghost, angels also will be in attendance. Christ is concerned about all those who are lost. The Messiah then defines his purpose for coming to earth. For the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. The scriptures provide three parables that poignantly define what he means by lost. 1. The parable of the lost sheep. 2. The parable of the lost coin. 3. The parable of the prodigal son. If we are true servants of God, then we will assist him in his mission. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them go astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountain, and seek that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. That doesn't mean that the ninety and nine are less important than the one that is lost. What it does allude to is that the ninety and nine should also be out looking for the lost sheep. The second great commandment is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Notice that our Lord does not say how the sheep came to be lost, because that is not the primary issue. One is lost whether through willful action and disobedience one brings it upon himself or herself, or whether one simply didn't know the way. Now let's turn to the parable of the lost coin. We find that parable in Luke 15. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle, and sweep the house, and seek diligently to find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Bible scholars tell us that the coins could represent a day's wages, which means that the loss of one coin would equal a day's wage, or it could mean the woman's dowry. Obviously, it is extremely important that the coin be found, enough so that the woman stops everything she is doing, lights the candle, and cleans the entire house until she finds it. I suspect we can all relate to that woman. When she finds the lost coin, she is so excited that she calls her friends and neighbors to share her joy. Is there any one of us who has not lost a very valuable treasure, so much so that we disrupt our lives and search every possible place? Some, many times. All of us can relate to the horror of losing something very valuable and the joy of finding it. It makes God very real to us. Even his angels who are in the presence of God rejoice. To us, the lost item may be a wedding ring. To God, it is a lost soul. The woman searching for the coin represents all of God's servants who are searching for lost souls. It is a divine occupation. In the parable of the lost sheep, it is possible that the sheep chose to be lost by foolishly wandering off. The lost coin, however, was due to the woman's negligence. It didn't have to happen. It was the woman's responsibility to guard it, and yet in a careless moment, which we can all relate to, she took her eyes off the prize. But the woman isn't condemned. 
In fact, God and his angels rejoice with her when she finds the coin. God understands human foibles and weaknesses. We are often harder on ourselves than God would be. Also, as Christians, can't you imagine the woman fervently praying in her heart that she will find the lost coin? It reminds me of the image in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, concerning prayer. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Probably all Christians have turned God into a lost and found department. It is very easy to relate to the parable of the lost coin. Perhaps many fathers and many mothers who blame themselves have had children go astray. This parable is a testimony that Christ will help you gather your own lost lambs, though it may take a lot of patience. The third parable relating to that which was lost is very familiar, the parable of the prodigal son, also found in Luke 15. It is far more complex. The son willfully disobeys both his earthly father and his heavenly father. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servant, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out, and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, 
and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should be merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. The parable of the prodigal son contains three stories. The story of the father, the story of the prodigal son, and the story of the faithful son. The father doesn't sin. The father understands intuitively that his lost son has paid a very heavy price for his folly. The father doesn't feel obligated to pour salt on the wounds or to teach him a lesson. He is incredibly patient with both sons. The dilemma of the father is that he cannot undo what his young son has done. He cannot undo the suffering the boy has gone through, and he cannot undo the consequences of his lost inheritance. The young boy has wasted his inheritance. Everything else goes to the older son. The father is not God. He is the mortal father. He cannot magically restore everything that his son lost, but everything the father can do, he does do. He shows unconditional love for his son, hoping that the son will repent of his former behavior and put his life back in order, that he will rebuild his life and not go back to his rebellious stage. The son cannot get his earthly inheritance back, but the father is looking beyond this world. He is interested in his son's soul. Will the son remain on the straight and narrow course and rebuild his life, or will he go back to his old ways? We don't know the answer to that, and neither does the father. At this stage, the boy is forced into contrition. The young son brought his sorrow upon himself. The lad wasted his inheritance in riotous living. The son did not just offend his father. He offended God by violating the commandments of God. He paid heavy consequences. He had eat what the swine ate, suggesting that he had been acting like the swine. To understand how low the son had fallen, we must remember that swine were considered unclean. But extreme hardship causes the son to recognize his sins. He confesses to his father that he had sinned against heaven and before his father. The son had two obligations. One was to ask forgiveness of his offended father, which he first had to do before he could expect forgiveness from his offended God. His father frankly forgave him, which shows the greatness of his father. Now the son must work out his salvation before God. The father, a righteous man, understands that. He wants to create an environment where his son can best do that. The father didn't rejoice just because the son came home to him. The father rejoiced because the son also wanted to make his life right with God. The older brother, who had remained faithful, was angry with his father. He only saw the problem from his own point of view, as it related to him. He had been a diligent son, so we can say he had some justification. He was out in the field working when his younger brother came home. He thought his brother should be punished twice. The son had turned his back on the father, and now the brother wanted his father to turn his back on the son. Here are his complaints. I have been faithful. I have served my father many years. I have always obeyed my father. My father never gave me a kid that I might party with my friends. It is a very human response, isn't it? Even justifiable in the eyes of some. The father's answer is very revealing. You have always been with me. All that I have that is left is thine. 
Thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Though unlike his younger brother who violated the law of chastity, the older brother also committed a very serious sin. He violated the second great commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself. In this case, it was his own brother whom, as the older brother, he should have cared for his younger brother's welfare as much as his own. He was jealous of his brother and envious of his father's love for his brother, though he lost nothing in his father's generosity. The young son sinned against his father and against God. The older son sinned against God. Remember the words of the Savior as recorded in Matthew 6. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let us conclude with the Savior's words. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It is clear that the Lord wants to save everyone who will repent. The Father in the parable teaches all of us, as parents and grandparents, unconditional love for our children. The Father wants both the younger son and the older son to understand the higher laws. The parable of the lost sheep teaches us the importance of the one. The parable of the lost coin teaches us that God is patient with our mistakes. The parable of the prodigal son is a story about justice and mercy. Sin has consequences. Some earthly consequences cannot always be undone. For example, the son wasted his earthly inheritance and everything went to the older son. But we need to be merciful so that God will be merciful to us. Only God is the final judge. And unlike the earthly father in the parable, God can restore everything, even the eternal inheritance, in the kingdom of God. As the Lord revealed to Isaiah the prophet, referring to those who repent, Though your sins be as scarlet, yet they shall be as white as snow. To God, it is never too late to repent and to be restored to his grace. He revealed that in my Father's house are many mansions. Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast.